Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Simply Amazing. Tim Ryder from the Apple. We have a very special guest with us today. Mets beat writer at The Athletic, co-host of the Metrospective podcast with Ted Berg, which is outstanding, by the way. Uh, friend of the pod, Tim Britton. Welcome back to the show, man. Anytime. Thanks for having me, Tim. How's uh, how's camp life? Camps are open, albeit under the cover of uh, of COVID clouds. Strange times continue, huh? It's you know it's different for me that like I'm not down in Port St. Lucie, so this is the the first time in 11 years as a, a beat writer that I, I'm I haven't been down to spring training yet. I you know I don't plan on going down at this point. Uh, things might change, but uh, it is definitely you know it, it's obviously different for everyone down there. It's different not being down there. Uh, and just trying to, you know, do your your spring training work where every reporter is working more uh, individually than maybe they do during the season when, you know, the storylines are a little bit more shared. Uh, that uh, to try to do your own thing during spring training while in a bunch of Zoom scrums is uh, is different and uh, and a little bit more challenging uh, than the usual spring training. Yeah, just, uh, you know, strange wrinkles at, at every turn, it, it seems like. And I guess even even for someone in your case where you're not there for the first time in, you know, a decade plus, it's got to be uh, just, you know, waiting for things to go back to normal. But at the same time, it's kind of just rolling with the punches, right? Yeah, and less fast food for me this spring <laughs> so far. Usually, you know, that's the you, you try you work hard in the off season to like you know cook for yourself and, and and eat well, and then you get down to Florida and it's like you're on a three hour drive and the Wendy's is right there, man. So <laughs> it's, it's probably better for my physical condition uh, in, in so much as anything is is better. Sure. Um, now, do, do you feel like there's a, I guess, a disconnect between you know? getting the same level of coverage for as far as being away as compared to being, you know, literally in the mix. You know, there's definitely scenes you miss uh, not being there. You know, I, I was reading the other day stories by, uh, I think, Tim Healy at Newsday and Mike Puma at The Post about the outdoor team meeting that Luis Rojas had held that morning and how we had switched from Zoom to outdoor meetings. That's something, you know, I didn't I couldn't see, uh, you know, I've, I've been able obviously to watch the broadcasts. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's always nice to see those, those workouts before the first game where you see like the first bullpen sessions of guys, the first day of live batting practice is probably my favorite day of spring training in a normal year. Sure. You do get tired of those things, uh, relatively quickly. Like you watch pitcher fielding practice in the first five minutes, you're like, this drill looks kind of fun. And then 10 minutes later, you're like, oh, they just keep doing this over <laughs> and over. Uh, it looks it looks terrible. Uh, so I think, you know, it, it's definitely adapting to um, a different uh, level of awareness of everything that's going on there. I, I think I'm fortunate, uh, like I don't have to write every day at the level of granular detail that a lot of other beat writers do. Uh, and so I'm, you know, I don't have to uh, be on top of all of those things to quite the same extent uh, as I would if I were writing uh, daily for a newspaper, for instance. So it, it, it's, uh, it works to my benefit in that regard, but it, you know, you, you don't feel quite the level, uh, of awareness that you would, if you are there every day, the way some other people are. No, it's got to take some, some getting used to, but, uh, but on the field hopes are high. Um, I guess par for the course this time of year, especially after Steve Cohen's purchase of the team, um, you know, up and down the roster and even, you know, off the 26 into the 40, um, these hopes are, pretty much justified, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember going into last season, uh, last season in spring training, thinking that was the most talent, most talented team the Mets had brought to a spring training since probably 
2009 or so. Uh, and, and this year, there's an additional level of talent, not just because of who they brought in, in Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco uh, as kind of the main pieces that they brought in and James McCann, uh, but also because of the internal improvement they had last year, uh, just that Michael Conforto made that step that, that everyone was waiting for him to make, that uh, Dominic Smith made a, a step beyond what I think anyone was expecting out of him uh, in 2020. And th those guys look like not just, you know, nice complementary pieces in your lineup, but kind of more like foundation pieces uh, in the lineup. You got another good, solid offensive season out of Brandon Nimmo, out of Jeff McNeil, that, that they kind of seem like they are what they are at this point and what they are is very good. Uh, so that, that lineup probably underperformed in terms of actual run scoring last year, the actual production because of the issues with runners in scoring position, because of some base running uh, woes. But uh, in terms of sheer talent, uh, like that, that lineup last year was as good as any in, in the major leagues and this year looks to be better on paper. Uh, so I, I do think this is probably, you know, if you are a Mets fan and, and you are not excited about the on-field product that the team has uh, in spring training of 2021, I, I don't know what it would be to get you excited. Right. Right. And then, you know, there's always those, I guess, uh, pockets of the fan base who are, you know, just never quite, uh, you know, happy about things, but, you know, they, on pretty much across the board, general consensus is this has been a terrific offseason. And, um, you know, heading into camp with the with the depth that's been assembled, um, I guess you mentioned in an article, I believe it was a couple of weeks ago, um, aptly named five things that matter. <laughs> you mentioned play, playing time matters. Um, Luis Guillorme, over the first four games, he's played third base, second base, shortstop. He's performed well. Um, this has to bode well for his I guess chances at the 26th spot or, or what have you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you are may like, I, I don't worry too much about him not making the, the opening day roster. I think the way he played uh, last season, the way he's played for a couple of seasons, like, you know, there, I think there, you know what he is as a utility player. Uh, I think, there are some people, and Luis certainly among them, uh, who would like to be more than just a utility player. Uh, and I, like he can play his way into that. I don't think he can do that in spring training. Uh, but I think over the course of, of the regular season, if he, if he hits the way he did last year, uh, we know what he can do defensively with the glove uh, and the advantage he has there over someone like J.D. Davis at third base, uh, that if he produces offensively, uh, then, then he might be able to work his way into more everyday playing time. But, you know, the way we've seen him uh, include with guys like Kevin Pillar and Jonathan VR um, and Tomas Nito, like I, I think I feel like those four guys uh, you feel pretty confident are going to be part of the opening day bench. Uh, barring injury, I think it's really a matter of do they take someone like Jose Martinez uh, as a fifth bench guy? Do they want an extra pitcher? I think those are probably the conversations they start to have, you know, two weeks from now as you get into the, the home stretch of spring training. Yeah, and I think it kind of comes down to the, to the little things. I mean, I, of course, the more Guillaume shows that he can handle pretty much any role the team throws at him. And, you know, you can't put too much into spring training, but even in the past, he's shown he can he can really kind of fit that bill. Um, your article Friday morning with regards to base running and defense, another really excellent read. Um, it kind of fits into that whole narrative. Like these little things might set apart, I guess, set guys apart when it comes to making those final decisions or even on a, on a game to game basis. Also bonus points for dropping Todd Hunley's outfield escapades <laughs> in there. That was terrific. <laughs> um, you look at guys like VR 
uh, Malik Smith, who's another really fringe contender, who's looked okay. His defense is always nice. Um, Kevin Pillar, they all fit that kind of defense base running improvement the Mets were looking for, uh, like to a T. Uh, all three are among the top 10 in major leagues uh, in Fangraphs BSR, which is their base running metric since 2018. Uh, all three are viable to valuable fielders. Uh, of course, all, all good things. You know, we've seen Brandon Nimmo um, make outs on the base pass this spring. The Mets have expressed confidence in Brandon Nimmo. And, you know, we've we heard a lot about that this week. And, and he's looking for the opportunity or looking forward to the opportunity, I should say. But. You know, could these little things shake out to a shift in time sharing with regards to center field or even around the infield with VR's and VR's case? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question to think about because, you know, in a vacuum, like you would say that uh, Kevin Pillar's base running ability does not make him better than Brandon Nimmo on a daily basis uh, because of just Nimmo's advantage uh, offensively as a a guy who gets on base at, at really a 400 clip over the last several years. Uh, but you, you you can make a case like given the composition of the team around, uh, you know, I, I don't think that that probably impacts center field as much. I think Nimmo's got too big of an advantage. But, uh, you know, when we talk about Davis and Guillaume, you might say at some point, like, you know what, the offense is good enough. The offense with the rest of the group is good enough that we can make the uh, offensive sacrifice of moving from J.D. Davis to Luis Guillaume to shore up what is a weakness in our infield defense, for instance, or you start doing that on more of a, more of a regular basis because, okay, you've got a ground ball pitcher, Marcus Stroman pitching, say we want to strengthen the infield defense today. We're confident in the other seven guys in our lineup that we can take a small step back with this offensive production. Uh, so I, I wonder if that plays into it. Just when you look at the entire roster, what's the best complement to the rest of the group in a, in a, in a lineup in a given day. Uh, you know, I wrote the story basically about, you know, defense holding runners, base running. That's what Luis Rojas has, has talked a lot about from the day pitchers and catchers reported. Uh, and it was um, interesting to me that it was like laid out that way. It was one, two, three, um, those three things, those three bullet points. Uh, you don't usually hear a manager uh, say it quite as explicitly as Rojas did, uh, because those are things that the personnel changes should improve to an extent. Clearly having Francisco Lindor as your everyday shortstop is going to make your defense better uh, than, than it has been at that position over the last several years. But there are some areas where they still need internal improvement. And that's especially like the outfield defense uh, that I talked about in that story. Uh, and then in base running where, you know, Lindor is replacing like the only two guys on the Mets who were faster than him in Ahmed Rosario and Andres Jimenez. So uh, those are things that that aren't necessarily just going to automatically be better because of the changes you made. Uh, and so I'm, I'm interested in seeing, you know, every team emphasizes that in spring training. Every team says you want to be aggressive on the base pass. Every team says we're working hard on holding runners. Uh, teams that, that don't have huge issues with those things, the way the Mets did in 2020, the way the Mets have for several years, uh, say those things in spring training. I remember covering John Lester when he was like, I'm really working on my pickoff move this year. And then he never threw to first base that season. Uh, so th- this is when you want to see, like, what does that work actually entail beyond saying, I want to work on it? Uh, and then how can we carry it over into the season? You know, the, the Mets with base running in particular, uh, it's nice to say you want to be aggressive. You don't have a particular amount of team speed to be aggressive. So how are you going to balance? You know, your aggressiveness often looks like recklessness. 
the way it did throughout much of last season and the way it has, for instance, with Nimmo at the start of spring training with a couple of outs on the bases. So it's, it's towing that line and, and making, you know, making it more than just a point of emphasis, but doing something behind it to, to actually improve players. Yeah. And it, it's, it's kind of curious to see, I guess, you know, among the position players, among the, I guess, the points of, of emphasis this spring, um, they're very specific, you know, look, just focal points. Hey, you know, we have to improve here. We have to improve here. You turn in. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Looking to like the bullpen and, you know, you're just looking for guys to kind of produce to their career averages, to their potential, however you want to look at it. The Mets got encouraging news on Seth Lugo on Thursday that he's, I I guess you could say, on track. There's really no, I guess, set timetable for his return, but um and the other guys are going to have to step up. Uh, Stephen Tarpley, left-hander, he's, I think, I believe he was the first to get a second turn among the pitching staff on Friday. Um, you know, most likely a taxi squad type guy, but with Lugo out and Batances and Familia as, you know, remaining as question marks, you really can't, I guess, put too much uh, confidence in, in them until they really show it. But um, guys like Tarpley, even Gazelman, who looked okay on Friday, you know, there's going to be opportunities for them to kind of sh- fill up those gaps, right? Yeah, I mean, they've got, I, th- I think you're assuming at least an eight-man bullpen out of spring training uh, and, and maybe even nine uh, because you can carry as many pitchers as you want. And we saw, you know, maybe they go 14-man pitching staff. Uh, so that creates opportunities at the, you know, the back end, of, the bottom end of that bullpen, back end you know, is, is covered with Diaz and, and those guys. Uh, so, you know, in the past, we've seen the Mets, that core of relievers was like the entire group that they traded for in 2017. Uh, you know, uh, the Jacob Rames um, and that group of relievers that just didn't pan out necessarily mm-hmm. uh, that we saw them kind of give up on by the end of last season. A bunch of those guys are elsewhere now. Drew Smith is really the only one that's left and probably the one that that has performed the best at the major league level to this point and is a guy who, who you know, could break camp with the team uh, as one of those relief options. And they've got guys who have options to go back and forth between the majors and minors. You know, Gazelman, for instance, has that that capability. Uh, so that, that makes him a bit more valuable in his flexibility. The, the bullpen is so hard to predict in spring training because you can be like, if you told me that Jacob Barnes is not in the Mets organization on April 15th, and if you told me that Jacob Barnes is throwing the eighth inning of a tie game on April 15th, both of those seem possible. <laughs> uh, so that is just, you know, we, we've all seen major league teams where guys just jumped with roles right out of spring training uh, and, and carried them for months at a time. You know, what was it with Jim Henderson with the Mets? Like, where was he coming into that spring training? And he was like one of the key reliever for a long stretch of that season. I don't even remember what year that was. Uh, You know, Pedro Beato, when he was a rule five pick, became uh, a more trustworthy reliever pretty quickly. Paul Sewell did that at times in 2017 and 2018, you know, early 2018. I don't think he gave up a run in April uh, and he started pitching important seventh and eighth innings for you uh, pretty early that season. 
So the the roles are really malleable in the bullpen. Uh, it changes over time. You know, I think Diaz is is going to be the closer, and we'll see how creative Rojas uses him. He said he wants to be creative. That's another thing managers say a lot in spring, and then it gets <laughs> difficult to actually implement once the season starts. Uh, you have Trevor May is probably your chief setup man with Lugo out, uh, and then you've got opportunity not just for for the the guys to make the opening day roster, but for someone to claim like that regular seventh inning role, whether that is given to Betances or Familia at the start of the season. And then you try to work through and see if, if Miguel Castro steps up, if Gazelman steps up, if Drew Smith looks good, like there's going to be, like you said, that opportunity, not just to be on the roster, but to, to pitch some pretty important innings pretty early in the year. Yeah. And that's, that's, I guess Castro is a guy I'm really thinking of that, um, he reminds you so much of Diaz. He's got so much of that lateral movement on his pitches that you know, it feels like once he harnesses that, um, he could be a real weapon. And I know that that's what they're trying to get out of Familia right now. And he's a veteran. And, you know, it's it's almost like a testament to the, you know, just the same old foundation. Like, hey, you got to, you know, use your pitch movement to your advantage. And for a guy like Castro, who doesn't have a, a whole ton of major league experience, or when he does, it hasn't been so consistent, but he has that potential. Um yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it, I guess like we're both saying, it gives everyone the opportunity to kind of jump in. And by the way, Jim Henderson was 2016. It's all a blur, but I had to look it up. It's there. It's 2016. I, I man, I would have said 14. That's that seemed longer ago. That, that did not <laughs> seem like a right. team that, that I didn't think that was a team that he, that was happening on a team that made the playoffs. So. <laughs> oh, made the playoffs. I, I still, I, I still, I don't want to get a two off, off tangent here, but I, the, the whole idea of the one game wild card play in, it still bothers me. And that's not just because the Mets lose, but after 162 for it to come down to one, oh, it just feels wrong. Yeah, I've, I've hated that since they brought it in. I, I think it should be at least, at least a little two game thing where the team that was behind in the standings has to win twice. Because you feel, you know, obviously as a Mets fan, you feel it for 2016. Like you have to, it's a one game playoff and you've got to go against Madison Bumgarner. But uh, I always feel bad for the Pirates fans because they had, you know, you had Bumgarner in 2014. You had Jake Arrieta in the midst of like that ridiculous run in 2015. Uh, it doesn't matter how good your team is if that's the guy you're going up against. Like the 72 Phillies who, who lost 100 games are not the team you want to see in a one-game playoff because they got Steve Carlton there, you know? Right. Uh, so that's what I, I don't like about it. I'm, I'm totally with you there. Oh, that's a good example. <laughs> 100 lost team, but you still got to face like a, you know, like you said, a Steve Carlton or a, who knows, a Roy Halladay during the, you know, the Blue Jays down years, whatever you want to put on it. That's a that's a good one. I like that. Um, all right. This week, I guess we both spoke a little bit about it. Um, I guess about the, I guess you can call it hypocrisy. Um, the Mets, you know, doing a great thing, attempting to improve their organizational hiring practices in the wake of the harassment, exact, excuse me, harassment accusations against uh, Jared Porter, Mickey Calloway, um, hitting instructor Ryan Ellis, and even just reading that off my list, that's a lot of Mets. But and at the same time, openly pursuing a, a Trevor Bauer, who, you know, of course, it's another form of harassment altogether, but he has his own issues in that department. I guess I found it a bit counterproductive, contradicting, what have you. The progress is good, but what message does this send to concerned parties? Yeah, I think it, well, it's important to distinguish between the magnitude of what uh, Jared Porter did, Mickey Calloway, Ryan Ellis, and what Trevor Bauer engages in on social media. It's it's a it's a different level, of course. But, yeah, um, you know, I, I think. <sighs> I think it was Allison McCaig 
who wrote this at, at um, Amazing Avenue, the, the idea of the way things uh, as a fan, you know, your, your fandom doesn't just disappear. It doesn't vanish. Uh, it gets eroded by certain things. Uh, and you can imagine, um, especially as a female fan, but I, I know there are a lot of, of male fans who feel the same way about this over the last two months, uh, just the way these things make you care a little bit less about the New York Mets, make you want to root for the New York Mets a little bit less. And that uh, if you had, you know, if they had succeeded in signing Trevor Bauer, that was another thing that was going to make you root for them a little bit less, uh, maybe a lot of it less in some instances. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, uh, I think Sandy Alderson said a lot of the right things uh, back in January, the day they fired Jared Porter, you know, he talked, uh, he, he, there was this, um, look of introspection when he was on a zoom call, you know, and in, in so much as you can tell on a zoom, uh, mm -hmm. he talked about the importance of integrity and moral courage. Uh, and so that's why it was disappointing to me to see the organization uh, turn around uh, and pursue Bauer as aggressively as they did. Um, you know, it, it's not just that this was a guy they were willing to bring in on kind of a, a conditional basis. This was a guy they offered the highest salary in the history of the sport for a single season to. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that was, you know, I think Alderson was right on Monday when he said we weren't naive that this guy was going to change because he's 30 years old and, and he was just rewarded with the highest salary uh, for a single season in the history of the sport. So there's really little incentive for him to change. Uh, but that just indicates how, how okay the Mets were with how he'd behaved in the past uh, and how he was likely to continue to behave uh, in a way that would turn off. You know, Alderson talks about baseball as an entertainment business, uh, as an entertainment product. And this was a way that was going to turn off consumers of your specific team's entertainment. Uh, so I thought just, you know, if you could make the business entertainment argument that bringing Trevor Bauer was not wise. Uh, and I, I think, you know, when you think about what fandom is, it's you don't want to have to root for people like that. Or there are plenty of people who do root for your team who don't want to root for people like that. Uh, and uh, that's kind of like the worst position to be in as a fan. I remember I'm a New York Giants fan and going the last Giants game I went to, uh, whew, I think this was 2016. Uh, they beat the Saints in week two. And Josh Brown was the hero. He was the guy who kicked the game winning field goal. And this was while, uh, you know, Josh Brown had been. Uh, credibly accused of domestic violence and the Giants stood by him. Uh, and like, I didn't feel good after that game. I didn't, you know, the, the whole last drive, I'm like, this is setting up for Josh Brown to kick the winning field goal. And I was <laughs> mad about it. Um, and I think there are, I don't think I'm unique in feeling that way about certain players. Uh, and I think there's a, a large section of the fan base that feels that way. And so, you know, I, I think that that pursuit of Bauer disappointed me. And then on Monday when Alderson talked more in depth about those things. Um, I, I don't think, uh, like I, you know, I wrote about it and I don't want to come off as, as ripping what they're doing so far. I just don't think it's enough. You know, when, when Alderson talks about the vetting process and says, we're talking to women now, I worry that they're setting it up so that the next time something like this happens, you can say, well, we talked to women, you know, what else could we have done? There is more you can do. Uh, we know there's more you can do right now. And I want to hear them lay that out uh, more specifically uh, and, and to think, you know, to uh, show a little bit more of that introspection that I felt we saw in January that I didn't think we saw as much this past week. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's not like Alderson was was callous or, or you know, 
or, you know, blatant or not this week. It, you know, it seems like, you know, there was a, a distinct conflict between doing what would be perceived as the right thing and doing what's perceived as the best thing for the team on the field. And sure, there's a lot of merit to that discussion. And I wouldn't want to have been at that table or in that boardroom having to discuss those those merits that had to be a tough decision. But, you know, clearly they went the decision they went, Um, you know, from a fan standpoint. Sure, it's it's disappointing. It's the same disappointing feeling that, you know, when the Mets brought back Jose Reyes, of course, not on the same level, but, um, you know, knowing that these are the facts and kind of doing it anyway. It's just uh, it's it's a punch in the gut to certain factions of the fan base. And, and, And I just you know, personally, I don't feel that that should be ignored. And to an extent, you could tell that it wasn't because Sandy felt the need to kind of explain the situation. But you know, it, in the same regards, it's it, it, it's it's contradicting. And uh, again, it shouldn't discredit the steps they've taken to to make the New York Mets a, a safer place for people to work or, or what have you. Even on a broader sense, Major League Baseball finally bringing this into the spotlight, by the way. Christina Montana, I got to pay the bills real quick. Christina Montana from the Apple wrote a terrific article on women in baseball, women in sports in general, Friday morning at the Apple. Everybody check that out. It's just terrific. It's 1500 words of absolutely heartfelt, great stuff. Anyway, back to what we're saying. It makes certain factions of the fan base feel unheard. And, and that's really not what being a fan is about. And um, yeah, just, you know, progress. I think we could all look and say, what we need here is, is progress. And from what we saw in January, steps are being taken. And even what we've seen recently and Sandy's other comments on uh, uh, this week regarding um, the hiring practices, like that's, those are all really, really good things. But um, yeah, personally, I wouldn't have, if it was my money, I wouldn't have been thrown it at Trevor Bauer, but that's another discussion for another day. Uh, Tim, what do you got cooking on your end through the, uh, through the end of camp kind of just taking it in and, and analyzing. Yeah, you know, I've got some some more story ideas that, uh, you know, I actually, you know, we're recording this on Friday, the off day. I'm, uh, I'm got to sit down and kind of recalibrate now. I've, I've written kind of the early spring training stories, and now it's a, a matter of figuring out what to cover the rest of the way, what what bigger stories I want to try to tell. And, you know, staying on top of obviously the, the day-to-day operations down there uh, and, and figuring out what what matters and what doesn't. The, the eternal spring training struggle is, is figuring out what matters and what doesn't uh, at this point in the year. So that'll be, uh, I'll spend some time today and, and over the weekend trying to figure that out and maybe trying to, to figure out how to watch Jacob deGrom pitch on Saturday night. Not sure if I'm going to be able to, to do that, but we'll see. Got to got to wait for Google Maps to go live. <laughs> um, and uh, just, I guess, personal call. Do you think one or both uh, Francisco Lindor or Michael Conforto are locked up before opening day? I know it's a big uh, question. I don't want you to take too big of a leap, but do you I think will, signs I, are pointing that way? If you let me extend the time frame just a little, because I don't think it necessarily has to be done opening day. I think we see a lot of these get announced the first like t- 10 days or two weeks of the season. Mm-hmm. So if you extend it out to like April 15th or so tax day, uh, I would, I would, ex- I would be surprised if they didn't, I'll surprise, I would I would say that it's better than 50-50 chance that Lindor is extended by that point. Um, I think it's probably a little bit less than 50-50 that Conforto is, uh, but I don't think it's zero. Uh, I don't think it's zero that they extend both. Um, so I, I, I would give you decent odds on a Lindor extension happening between, you know, in the next 40 days or so. Probably not 
much sooner than 40 days. Like it, it it's not going to happen this week. It's probably not going to yeah. happen in the next two weeks. It's, it's going to be right around opening day if, if and when it does happen. But I, I, I think there's a legitimate shot of that happening. Yeah, I think that's fair to assume. And, and you know, Mets fans are just kind of clamoring for it at this point. You know, it's, it's a big step forward, you know, to, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, you you make that trade uh, to in order to to have that guy long term. I know there's a lot of good shortstops who are going to be available this offseason, season, uh, but if if you preferred any of them uh, over Lindor, you would not have traded for Lindor. So I think uh, you you made that trade with the with the idea in mind that you were going to sign Francisco Lindor for the next decade to be your shortstop. So that, that's kind of what I think will eventually happen. Yeah, yeah, you have to you have to assume, and uh, yeah, I think I think that. We hit all our bases, man. Tim, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This has been really fun. Oh, anytime. Thanks for having me. All right, man. Everybody check out Tim over at The Athletic on Twitter. Subscribe to The Athletic, by the way. It's the best money you'll ever spend. Um, and uh, and yeah, we'll, you know, we'll be back on Monday with a brand new episode. Tell you what happened with Jacob DeGrom. All right, everybody. Let's go Mets. We'll see you next time.